Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Gavin Esler. Around 40% of Britain's young people go to university or further education after school. That's a huge advance on the situation in the 1950s, when only 3% managed to get into the few universities then in existence. That was an educated elite. But it all changed in the 1970s, with a host of new universities being created, including the University of Kent, where I'm in my final year as Chancellor. But wait, Instead of celebrating this brilliant education success story on the political right and further right, including the Conservative MP Miriam Cates, there are those who claim that British universities create too many low-value degrees, whatever they are. This is somehow tied to what some Conservatives and their opaquely funded friends in think tanks call elite overproduction. Some even claim that universities teach students to become left-wing. Well, I must have missed the compulsory Marxism tutorials. So what is going on here? Is it just more of the dismal politics of distraction, undermining aspiring young people and a smokescreen behind which government policies mean university funding hasn't kept pace with inflation? Dr. Zoe Hope Belitis is an assistant professor at the University of Birmingham and author of Value and the Humanities, the Neoliberal University and Our Victorian Inheritance. Welcome to The Bunker, Zoe. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Maybe you can explain what is or what could be a low value degree, because it baffles me, frankly. Yeah, absolutely. I think the word dismal that you use there in your introduction sounds about right to me as well. I think to engage with it, I think we'll probably have to think about who is using the word low value degree. I should say as someone who has been through higher education, the first person in my family to have access to it, I would sort of contest that term on personal grounds, but also in terms of my profession now within universities. I guess to say that a degree is low value is already to concede to the ground that the value of a degree can be calculated on specific terms. And that's something I think I'd like to kind of explore and unpack today. Um, but really where we hear this language of low value degrees at the moment, it's coming from politicians and specifically from those who are in the government. And to me, it reads like something where we're seeking to make a policy change in higher education that's defined by minimum expectations rather than say, hey, here's this amazing thing that higher education is and can do in terms of its potential. It's a really an oversimplification that allows government action on a very, very limited term of debate. It says there's this bottom 
failure in the system that we're going to address rather than a, a true expansive look at what the value of higher education is. So yeah, dismal sounds right to me. One of the things that struck me is low value to whom? Because, uh, you know, I've, I've just gone through shaking lots of hands at graduation ceremonies. I mean, literally hundreds and hundreds of students who are all happy. I mean, they, they come into Canterbury Cathedral or Rochester Cathedral or we do our degree ceremonies and their parents are there or their grandparents or their loved ones. And they're happy because they feel they have achieved something, which they have. So that's what worried me about this statement, that it was somehow denigrating the achievements of people who may not earn hundreds of thousands of pounds every year, but it's a value to them. Now, take it you and I are agreed on that, that point, at least. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this idea of the calculation of value of, of where the meaning of value of higher education is placed in England is something that's been really debated for the last 10 years, but predominantly within higher education policy itself, not within the people who are coming and receiving an education at the universities in England. So I think what we see is this sort of metricization. I like to use the word econocratic way of measuring things, that it's about how you could provide proof of ways in which the system could be changed rather than kind of addressing its potential. And I think you're absolutely right in terms of, you know, that that disconnect in the, the idea of a low value degree. It's really being measured by systems of evaluation of universities that have been imposed by, you know, government measures resulting first and foremost from the raising of tuition fees with the Brown Report, which happened in 2010. And we saw this shift of, um, you know, university education costing around £3,000 for the last 20 years before that and thinking about how that then tripled to £9,000. And there's suddenly this shift of, of, of responsibility. And we see that in the language, I think, about, about education funding, rather than being it being something that the government was subsidising. It's now something that individual students were purchasing and, and having access to. And now this is all on the plane of policy, right? This isn't necessarily something that those applicants coming and looking around universities and say, yes, I want to get good value for my degree. But it's really that mentality of policy that the government's been pursuing now for well over a decade. And I think this is just the latest sort of iteration of that. Maybe we could explore that a little bit more, because one of the other things that comes up time after time is, and I'm going to simplify greatly, Science degrees, they're worth, they're great, they're wonderful. Arts degrees, they're rubbish. They're, what's the point of those? And the bizarre thing about that is that the people who run this country tend not to have done, with Mrs. Thatcher being an exception, tend not to have done science degrees. So the politicians themselves, the political class as a whole, kind of disprove the idea that you need a science degree to get on. <laughs> absolutely. And I think, you know, you're, you're absolutely right in saying that, that all of the people who have held office as prime minister have themselves been beneficiaries of, of a university education. I would say, you know, going back to that initial comment about elite overproduction, perhaps the, the bias towards Oxford University in the recent prime ministership, and in fact, from its initiation has been something we might question in terms of who uh, has access to the highest office in the land based on their, their educational background. Um, but certainly, I think you're right. There's this sort of ongoing discourse I think you know it dates back to you can see as early as like 2002 we have politicians using the term Mickey Mouse degrees you know we remember that kind of attack on media and, and communication studies and I think now when we look at the world and where jobs are being created it seems it seems sort of farcical to have, think, have thought that those were unneeded skills so I think that 
A lot of this is about the, the time frame in which you can measure value. The new policy that comes off the back of this low value degrees announcement will be primarily around how you measure graduate outcomes from their degrees within 15 months of graduating university. So this is a pretty short time in a young person's life. They finish university and then within 15 months, the government will calculate whether or not they have a low value degree or not. And you know, when you think about a career and how that goes, I think particularly in creative subjects, in, in humanistic subjects, sometimes you have to do a, a, a lower paying job. And this might be a condition of the arts industry we want to reflect on around, you know, the prevalence of internships and freelancing work to get a career started. But it says nothing about the experience within the university that in 15 months, they might not be in their high paying graduate job. And I think it also, you know, the fact that the students are willing to go into these careers shows that there's more to life than that high paying paycheck. The students are willing to put up with pretty terrible employment conditions to reach that goal. And I think that that, again, is something about the aspiration that people have for their lives. I think that this policy really overlooks that we might not want to simply obtain training in a a sector that will pay us well. There might be more to going to university than that. I just wonder, listening to it and listening to the way you frame that, I mean, for instance, in my first two years after leaving university, I did a postgraduate degree, but I was basically on a kind of slightly paid internship. I was poorer even than I was as a student doing part-time jobs, it seemed to me. I'm just wondering, is this actually a policy at all? Or is it just a, a divisive way of saying young people don't vote for us anyway? the the Conservative Party. So actually, we're going to create divisions there, just as we're trying with gender and other issues to draw divisions to try to rally our vote, because we're, we're in trouble. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with you that this is more sensation than substance. Um, You know, it's the first piece of official press release from the government in response to the Augur review, which was a really substantial piece of research that was conducted by the government, started back in 2019 now. It's been going and and sitting there as this 200-page tome for you know, nearly four years. And I think that this is the first response. It's really underwhelming, though perhaps not unsurprising. I think that, you know, the way in which we've seen rhetoric coming out of the government about higher education, you know, the last thing we knew, we heard really in terms of a, a change in the management was around the funding for arts and humanities courses that it was going to be be cut. We don't really see much ambition, I think, from, from the government in terms of making and addressing changes for young people. You know, the, the barriers I think that they're facing in terms of, you know, if we talk about wooing young voters um, around access to housing, you know, affordable rents, a society that provides jobs that are appealing to them. These are all massive social issues. And I think it's much easier to sort of point the finger of blame at universities in this language. And, you know, low value degrees, I think, is quite provocative for people working in um, higher education. But actually, if you look at the title of the press release, which is actually crack down on rip off degrees, that's the official headline of the press release for the government. You really feel that antagonism, I think, you know, crackdown, I think is something I would assume to be far more akin with policing or crime and punishment than education. Um, And the idea of a ripoff certainly uh, kind of underlines that sensationalism, really. And that's that desire to sort of say it's your fault. But that's what struck me about it was exactly what you've referred to there, which is that's the Daily Mail headline. That's not the headline for a government policy. In other words, it's for tomorrow morning's headlines to impress people about something which is divisive. Is there any metric for saying 
what percentage of people should go to university. You know, Tony Blair talked about half half a cohort, 50%. It seems to be about 38% here. I looked at some of the figures. Sweden has got nearly 50%. But is that is that better than us or are we fine? I, I don't quite know what we should make of these figures. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a really important question about what a university education is for. You know, we're having these debates about how much should tuition fees cost? How do we calculate the value of them? But actually, what are, what is university for is, is the question that kind of underlines that. My response would be, I don't think that it's too much. I think that as long as a system is equipped to support young people in that, that there should be maximum access to that opportunity, you know, on the grounds that I think it's recognised widely that education and further education improves the quality of people's lives in many different ways. You know, the ability to make uh, critical choices and reason and so on and so forth. These are things that will never be calculated in in the first job they get when they leave university. But those who work within university and and specifically, I think, within programs that have mature students or focus on uh, students coming in from non-traditional backgrounds, really see that transformation. Even if it's not reflected in a first class degree, you see that change that a university education can create for people. Um, And I think that that's really important to think about. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Do universities make people lefties? <laughs> That's a funny question. I I would say that that is a question that I think is kind of an irrelevant one. Not that I want to dodge it, but I think that when we teach content in universities, I certainly wouldn't say that we would inflect our own politics or perspectives. What I think good university education teaches you is an ability to look at information and make your own mind up. <laughs> is that a left-wing thing to do? I don't know. You're going, maybe it is yes, definitely, thing. definitely. Okay. Um, and I think, you know, I, I also would challenge the stereotype, you know, of, a, of, of the left-wing academic, because I think there are plenty of my colleagues who, who would sort of identify right across the political spectrum. I think it's really healthy for people to be exposed to diverse opinions. And I think that it's good to kind of encourage that independence of of thinking. I certainly would come back and challenge that idea that was circulated in the press a few weeks ago around elite overproduction being this sort of left wing affect or effort. I think that that certainly doesn't make any sense to me. (laughs) But it's a bonkers phrase anyway, isn't it? I mean, how can you have elite overproduction if they're an elite? They're, by definition, a very small group of people. Anyway, I dare say uh, that, that they might need to do a little bit more reading on Marx. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. But I, well, I was struck by something that was said to me once in uh, the United States by a conservative politician. He said that what happens to liberals to turn them into conservatives is they get older, they get married, they want to have kids, and they get a mortgage. The trouble with that is now in 21st century Britain, many of us can't get a mortgage. It's too expensive. And having children is a real drain on our finances too, because of the way society is. So maybe in that sense, people do not turn to conservatives as they get older in the way they used to. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You know, when we look at generational aspirations and trends in the expectation that you might do better than your parents financially, this has absolutely not been the case since millennials, unfortunately. You know, I think we've really seen a change in culture where there's a hopelessness about the future. Um, there's been some really troubling surveys, I think, about people, certain expectations. I think it was a third of people under the age of 25 think that they will never achieve the job that they want to get. You know, And these are really damaging statistics, I think, for the traditional model of, of conservative ageing. You know, and I think that, again, comes back to that wider economic pressure that people are under in terms of, you know, like you say, access to housing, support to have a wage that increases over time. These are things that uh, are no longer uh, are granted and really do poke a stick in the, the mechanism of, of kind of the, that shift from liberalism to conservatism in England. One of the things maybe we should touch on is what are the problems facing students in universities? Because, for example, I've talked to quite a few medical students who say, do you understand how much debt I'm going to end up with when I leave? And I'm shortening this. And do you understand why it might be attractive to train in Britain and then go to Australia and make more money and pay off the debt that way. So we are saddling a whole generation, a whole cohort with enormous debts that I'm afraid my generation didn't have to deal with. Yeah, that's true. And I think when we think about the costs of education, we also need to take into account the cost of leaving home and going to university, you know, the grants to cover housing and, and living expenses are ever tightened. And, you know, I think students saddling debt, not only for the cost of courses, which is, of course, much, much higher than it has been at any other point in history in England, but also that cost of, of living and the the kind of expense of student accommodation, I think is something we should also kind of take into account with that in terms of access. And, and just to put that into context, I was actually in a, in a area of London where there are a lot of students and I looked in the, the windows of some of the estate agents who were renting to students and a one bedroomed, just a, a bedroom really, with shared facilities was £900 a month. Yeah. £900 a month for one person. So this cohort of students, it's hardly surprising if they feel the government doesn't really take them seriously. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think it's a sense of that broadening of opportunities that is perhaps being limited in the policies that we're seeing. This again, is a problem I wouldn't say is only affecting higher education. You know, we've seen it in, in changes in, in schooling and secondary schools as well in terms of what students actually get to do in schools and experience whilst they're within compulsory education. The changes imposed, for example, on the GCSE English since 2015 have really massively reduced people's access to actually reading an entire book, let alone, you know, getting anything from it. So I think that these changes and, and sort of reduction on the the minimum expectation of education is something we've seen sort of seeping through the education sector for, like I say, well over a decade. And I think that these consequences of, of a kind of a depressiveness, a lack of aspiration that people feel, they're, they're material in terms of the economic conditions, but they're also sort of the best that they've been offered. And I think that that's a, a really, a really sad state of affairs. Just a final thought. We've dealt with the policies or pseudo policies, and we've also talked a bit about the rhetoric. And I just wondered whether the rhetoric is doomed to fail for the obvious reason that if you're a student, you have somewhere, presumably parents, and you may have grandparents and you have uncles and aunts of different generations who may actually look at you and be very proud of you and not actually be very impressed by this kind of stuff. 
Yeah, I, I would hope so. I mean, that, that certainly relies on the sense that there are people within your social sphere who have had access to an education. I think that there are indeed still people um, in the UK who are not in that, in that situation. But I think you're right that that kind of pressure for the government to say to students, look, you're savvy shoppers, as it were, going into the supermarket of education, to, you can get yourself a good deal here or, or get ripped off. Um, that isn't something that you see students or, or any human being really identify with they don't want to be seen as that that's a quote student as consumer you know we're not we're not we're not only consumers and so I think that that absolutely you're correct that kind of shared experience of the thing will hopefully be enough to kind of overcome this sensational rhetoric I think the fact that it's it's not really something of substance rather a kind of a puff piece you know I don't think it's any coincidence that it comes out in the summer recess where there's no policy happening it sort of sits there like this angry thing um hopefully there will be those who have truly benefited from it or can see the potential still and we're not fully cynical yet one thing that does happen, though, is I do know, because I've talked to them, some young people who are put off uh, going to university, they're perfectly well qualified, and they will make a success of their lives, I have no doubt. But the reason they don't want to go is they do not want to saddle themselves and their family with debt for perhaps the next 20 years. And that is a real fear for many people, particularly from not what's called non-traditional university backgrounds like mine and yours, people who first in their, their, their family to go to university. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the the ways in which the student debt's been managed and there's been news about sort of changing terms and conditions and things and the news can create this fear about the cost of education. I think when you look at the the returns on investment and, and if you want to go down that financial term, it is a risk I would recommend anyone in doubt taking. But it is scary. You know, I think I, I absolutely remember that. And I, I confess I was only only paid £3,000 per year and plus the maintenance loans for, for my own education. You know, it is a scary leap to make. But I think in terms of other taxes and investments in one own life it's not such a such a huge thing to take on although it does certainly seem a barrier just to get started well i've always been a fan of the phrase if you think education is expensive you should try ignorance that is really expensive <laughs> anyway zoe thank you very much you've been listening to dr zoe hope Belitis, assistant professor at the university of birmingham and author of value and the humanities the neoliberal university and our victorian inheritance And listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please support The Bunker on Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you can get perks, including exclusive merch and ad-free episodes. Thanks for listening. This is The Bunker. I'm Gavin Esler. Goodbye. Bunker Daily was written and presented by Gavin Esler. The producer was Chris Jones and the assistant producer was Adam Wright. Audio production was by me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.